Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the podcast where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie are watching in the run-up to the new Deadwood movie coming this spring. My name is Brandi Sperry. I am a writer and co-host of the Downton Gabby podcast. I'm Lynn Sternberger. I am a television writer. My name is Sita Sean. I'm a stand-up comedian and comedy writer. Today we'll be discussing the seventh episode of the second season, E.B. Was Left Out, written by Jody Wirth and directed by Michael Almereda, I believe is how you say it. His first and only episode of Deadwood, he is primarily a feature director. This first aired on April 17th, 2005. Tolliver enlists Lee to clean up the aftermath of Wolcott's anger in the Shami. Stubbs confides in Utter, who overreacts when Wolcott, quote, steps on his toe in a queue and badly beats the geologist, leading to an emergency town meeting in which Tolliver tips his hand. Swearingen meets with Alma to inform her of a Pinkerton agent in camp. Afterward, she and Bullet confer about her bank and other expanding prospects. <laughs> these summaries get more and more. Like, Where are you pulling these from again? <laughs> it's Wikipedia. It's a Wikipedia. It's All right. like whatever fan plug. But sometimes they're identical to the one that shows up on HBO's page. So this one is not. <laughs> I like the pregnancy pun in the end. Her expanding prospects. Because they mean her belly? I guess she looks exactly the same. She looks the same. Yeah. Her waist is still tiny. But I do like that scene where she and Seth talk about the fact that she's not well in the mornings. Yeah, let's talk about this. How many times can people mention puking in the morning <laughs> as a euphemism for being pregnant? It was a lot. It's a lot. Um, he did it. She did it. It, it just keeps happening. Seth did it. <laughs> I, that is why my meetings are in the afternoon. Hello. So yeah, Seth goes and visits her and... I feel like I'm dissatisfied with the way that he's approaching this because nothing about what he says, like he offers to leave town. Which if that like, would make things easier for her not having to see his beautiful face walking down the promenade. He also doesn't want to set up the bank across from the hardware store because he's just so convinced that having to gaze upon him would be <laughs> yeah. so painful for her. And she's like, bitch, please make your own decisions. And also he doesn't say anything about like, being happy to know that she's going to have his baby or how he feels about it if he's not happy or if he would do anything on the slide to help out or whatever. Do you think he's projecting when he's like, she can't look upon me, it'll be difficult for her? Is that him being like, I don't want to look upon her, it's difficult for me? She never leaves her fucking room. Yeah, that's true. She never leaves the room. He never looks up at her window when he's walking down the street. Yeah, I mean, Seth projecting? What? I can't believe he's, he's a little full a of himself in this scene. He, not once is he like really thinking about what Alma needs, which is probably not for him to martyrize himself in some way and take away his family. I mean, she said so as much. She's just like, I don't right. need you to take away your entire family just so that like I can like live in camp. I think Seth was like the most off for me in this episode of all the characters, and I, and even I. I think it was Al who pointed out after that like camp fathers meeting where they're all together and he was like I was most impressed with Bullock because he wasn't getting all righteous like he normally Mm -hmm. does about Tolliver and Walcott who had murdered the women and like they all know what happened but Seth isn't like going after Walcott and and prosecuting him or beating him it's Utter who ends up doing it Seth is kind of checked out to be honest and I was like this isn't the Seth that we knew previously 
And it can't just be because he's not tight with Joni. Like, that doesn't seem... He seems very nonchalant about his theory that some whores were murdered. Yes. As he's chatting with Charlie about it. I'm just like, you are the sheriff. If you suspect that this is something that happened in the camp, are you going to go ask any questions This is or the what? man who, like, went to another town after getting severely beaten in order to bring to justice the guy who had killed his bestie from three mm. days in town. like mm-hmm. the, the, Oh, but that was a man. But that it was, was a man. man. It was a man. Not a worthless whore. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because they're actually talking about the value of women in these in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I believe in the next episode, the yeah. conversation Well, continues. this, I actually, I'm complaining about Seth's conduct, but overall, I think this is a really good episode, except for the scenes where we have to see Leon and Con Stapleton going around town asking people how much they would pay for Chinese pussy. What's going on with that? Why are they doing it, number one? Because apparently it's not selling. But that's not true. So I got confused in this scene, too, because they said the the tall Asian guy was running an operation. San Francisco cocksucker. San Francisco cocksucker. I.e. good-looking Asian man. (laughs) Hottie. I.e. you both want to bone this guy? Silent hotties. Evil. Yeah, yeah. Evil He's Evil like so clean compared to the rest of the men in town, too. That's, That's another thing. standard. <laughs> Good point, though. He's clean. Uh, but I thought he was running a separate operation, but he's not, right? Or, or am I What confusing? I took from it was Sai is under the impression that no one is going to these Chinese prostitutes, but it's because he's kind of trying to do it the same way that they've been doing things. Mm-hmm. But people are, like, not wanting everybody to know. Like, they don't want to go through town to get there. Like, it sounds like they have a separate, like, secret, direct-from-the-mines line going into the the Chinese side of things. Mm -hmm. And, like, Lee just knows that that's how this operation should go. But But why does Tolliver not realize that that's happening? Uh, If it's his operation and he's putting his goons mm -hmm. on drumming up business... Because he has a stake in it, which it seems like he does, why does he not know? Like, we shouldn't be confused about this. Like, he might be trying to obfuscate what's happening to the rest of the camp because he doesn't want them to know where his alliances are and where exactly the money's coming from. But I feel let down as a viewer that I feel it's obfuscated from us. Kind of the same feeling that I get when, like, women come to town and we don't know what their Like the school is. Who apparently only had half oh, a scene. What the fuck was that? That was so. That was Merrick's chance at happiness. <laughs> this is another thing we mad at Sai about. I don't. I guess because every time Lee comes in, all he does is chomp his cigar at him for a while. Lee says nothing and leaves. That's why he has no idea what's going on. Lee's like, I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do. I don't need to report to you. I don't know why I have to work with you. Which is another question, really. At this point, doesn't Wolcott have enough of a handle on what's going on? Does he really need size help anymore, anyway? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess we'll see moving forward because I don't. I don't see Wolcott still needing Sai if Hearst is going to come to town at some point. Yeah, and there's still the question of the claims from the previous episodes, right? Because that right. hasn't been completely resolved. We just had a riot. Uh, with the with the inciting incident of the claims possibly being taken away, but we still haven't fully resolved what that right, means. Right, right. Because there's still there's two parties, right? There's like Yankton and there's Montana, who might take jurisdiction. In any case, I continue to be irritated by Sid Oliver for for multiple reasons. Yeah, I'm very glad that Al is up and about, and um, as Jewel said, dragging his foot around, which. Was, oh, that was so funny. It was great that she got a little dig in at him, uh, turn, turned his own complaint on its head. Um, but yeah, Al is doing his rounds. He's getting back into the swing of things. 
Um, and I thought that the cold open of this episode was like amazing, where Al is like, did you realize there was a door that connects the gem to the <laughs> newspaper office? And I was like, what, did they just rebuild the stage or something? Like, uh, shouldn't you know? Shouldn't you know this? That's really random. <laughs> but it was funny. And Merrick's like, yeah, because people are always stumbling in and various forms of dress. I uh, guess it must have been like through the prostitute's room somehow, if that's what's usually stumbling into Merrick. It felt like it was like the end of a hallway. And I was just imagining Nick Offerman, remember his like naked oh, God, dick swinging oh. scene, walking in on Merrick, who's like setting type. Poor Merrick. <laughs> poor, poor Merrick. It's a good scene. The scene feels like the beginning of like a one act play or something. Like it's very stagey, but mm-hmm. it's fun. And you get to watch Al slap Merrick across the face to snap him out of his self pity. Yeah. yeah, I would say this episode in particular felt very theatrical because of the, all the soliloquies that mm-hmm. the characters are doing to inanimate objects. Oh yeah, like the Indian head? The Indian oh head. My took me forever to figure out the Indian head. I was like, whose head is that? Oh yeah, recall the chief, quote unquote. Why he excavated from his closet at this particular moment? I think Al's whole personality is interesting in this episode like he seems it starts with what he says to Merrick basically which is similar to some other things he said before about like life is just vile tasks and then you die kind of thing but now he's like more cheerful about it he's like I've cheated death but still life is nothing but vile tasks and you just need to deal with it like a man and also now I need to say all my thoughts out loud so I'm gonna talk to this head in a box it's interesting because Al puts kind of all of his cards on the table in like the whole episode. He talks to Merrick very much about like his point of view about Mm -hmm. survival, basically. And then he talks to this Indian head about God, I forget. It goes on at this Indian head. And Mm -hmm. then he visits Alma and uh, he basically is like, guess what? Your governess is a Pinkerton agent. You should pay me off and we should work in cahoots. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because I fucking hate the Pinkertons. I mean, he's just, like, there's no subtext. It's all main text now. What yeah, it's his... surprising that he was so bald about what he said about the Pinkertons. Because usually he's he's got a lo- another agenda. But it seems like with the Pinkertons, there's just, like, pure hatred there. Mm-hmm. He's just not willing to touch any amount of money related to them. And he's very honest with Alma. He's like, I hate the Pinkertons. And also, I can't have the only other person with this massive amount of gold in town be an enemy of mine if first is coming we have to be reluctant allies basically Mm -hmm. and Alma seems to understand everything that he's laying out as well I mean she kind of gives as good as she gets in that conversation Mm -hmm. and it is so fun because it's the first time they've ever spoken is it really yes holy cow that's crazy it's all intermediaries before right it's like Bill Bill Hickok did the speaking for her and then Seth and then E.B. Yep, wow. we are halfway through the run of Deadwood, and this is the first time these two major characters are ever directly interacting. I loved it. I loved how much agency Alma was displaying in that conversation. Like, she is making choices on her own now. Mm-hmm. I mean, she might have, like, Trixie's input or, mm-hmm. like, machinations behind the scenes mm-hmm. that are affecting things. But really, like, balls in Alma's court. Is she staying in camp? Is she having the baby? Is she building the bank? Is she in cahoots with Al? Those are all questions that she's determining the answers to herself. And I love it. 
I love it too because also from a character point of view, that scene occurs right before the Seth meeting comes about. So Al comes to her as an equal, as somebody who's like, listen, we've got a band up together. You've got these resources. He's like, he's basically treating her as a formidable opponent. Whereas when Seth comes in mm. and he's like, well, can you even look upon me? <laughs> you know, it's like, I think if I were that character and I had just experienced this man that I deathly feared for so long coming to me at a point of equality and this man that I like loved coming to me like a sniveling idiot I would be like fuck you too Seth that's such a good point that I had are we suggesting Seth take man lessons from Al <laughs> what the hell is wrong with us I'm suggesting that Seth get over things a little mm-hmm. bit I mean yes. he seems so reactive to everything and it's like can you just assert what you want to do with your life instead of constantly just being pissy at everyone else for trying to do that. So if Alma is coming into her own and making her own decisions in this episode, um, Joni is not doing the same thing following her trauma. I think the scene where she goes to Charlie and in piecemeal manages to get out what happened the night before is really heartbreaking because she's so clearly like on the edge she can barely put together a sentence telling him what really happened. She's, she's in a bad way in this episode. So Charlie drove the whores out of town, right? Like, he's mm-hmm. the one that put them on the truck and snuck them out. Yeah, and it seems to be just the next day, so I guess he must have just snuck them out he, to, like, the next train like station a or something. And then he came yeah. back, and that, that's kind of when we're meeting him and seeing his conversation with Joni. And it's weird how everybody knows exactly what happened and nobody will, like, say what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of like spills her guts to him about the, the I guess he knew that he was smuggling whores out of town he didn't know that there were three other people that yeah. are dead and that's yeah. what he's learning in that scene yeah but then we do get the very satisfying scene of Charlie beating the absolute shit out of Walcott I know that felt good I really was worried that Charlie was going to end up dead by the end of this episode oh, because of that mm-hmm. but Walcott his attitude in the aftermath of this is really interesting to me from a character standpoint like they are having him experience a weird kind of shame and he seems to know that he deserves to get the shit kicked out of him and so acts accordingly with that Mm, it's that's different than how i read it how did you read it yeah i mean i think that that's how the people in deadwood are reading it too because i feel like i hear a character say something yeah like i'll hire somebody to beat the shit out of you that's what you want basically yeah don't don't involve everybody else in town but i love crime and i watch a lot of like true crime stuff and i read a lot about serial killers and to me i mean he is a serial killer he is a psychopath that tipped into serial killing and my impression was he is scared of what men can do to him. He's not he's not going to stand up to a powerful man, mm-hmm. which is in part feeding into his violence toward women because it's like an assertion of his power. Bing, 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 bing. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> Okay. I don't think those two ideas are completely incongruous. I don't think so either. No, maybe it's layers, you know. Yeah, and it, and Charlie says something to that effect as well when he's goading him in the line. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've got your knife, I'm sure you've got your gun, I'm also sure you've never fought another man, is the yeah. gist of what he says to him right before he throws him out into the street. And he doesn't act like someone who's ever been in a fight like mm-hmm. that before. He's never been in a fight where he doesn't have absolutely the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Where he has a weapon, or it's like... He I has mean, the power, he has the money, mm-hmm. he has the straight razor, mm-hmm. he has women mm-hmm. working to uh, give him what he wants, to feed into it. 
Well, he's in a lawless land now where Charlie is part of what is supposed to be the law, even mm-hmm. though, as we see, they decide on a whim whether to enforce or not. So if the deputy kicks the shit out of you in Deadwood, you're probably not going to have anybody else on your side unless you're planning to bring in more of your outside agents, which he mm-hmm. ultimately decides not to. And what would that be, too? The telegram you would send to Hearst being like, I got the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> Please send a lawyer. Like, I don't I don't think he's going to go that route. I, I did worry that he was going to kill Charlie, but... But he is going to get to live. I mean, the the fathers of the camp basically decide we can't further uh, harass this guy because of... Hurst's involvement. And in part, it's because Tolliver is sitting at the table, and they now know that Tolliver is mm-hmm. working for Hurst, to a degree. Mm-hmm. But it's still after that conversation when Seth is putting together all the particulars of what happened, so we'll see if he grows a backbone and decides to do something about Walcott as well. Um, speaking of people like Joni who are miserable, I thought of this episode as like old-timey depression hour. I don't know about you guys, but like <laughs> it was kind of bleak. It wasn't kind of bleak. It was bleak. Between, uh, at least the female characters, I was dismayed that Trixie was visiting Al and acting. I, I mean, I get why she would act like she's spying for him at the hardware store, but she also is having this like stupid argument that like Seth and Soller are being too hard on her about her number adding or whatever, her columns. And I was like, Trixie, aren't you just like, weren't you recently defending them with your like life on the line and now we're sniveling back to Al like you got out of the whorehouse you did it why are you why are you still pretending like you don't like your new life I don't know I feel like the scene was really written to demonstrate something about Al and not taking into account Trixie's change of attitude because it felt like it was to demonstrate that he would sort of let her think that she was still a needed spy in order to continue on with her studies like he gives to sort of give like her a, a gift mm-hmm. yeah he gives sort of like a proud nod to himself after she leaves the room and i was just like this irritates okay me. <laughs> I mean, sure maybe we're supposed to believe that al has made progress in being a human being after his close maybe call it could also be trixie knowing that al maybe doesn't want to see her happy somewhere else i don't know that he doesn't want to see her happy somewhere else I think that's what Brandy's argument would argue. Like, that's what that would be about. But, like, I did feel like they neglected Trixie's point of view. First Mm -hmm. of all, we Mm -hmm. don't see the fight and the tensions that she's talking about. Mm -hmm. We don't see her at odds with Seth or Saul or anybody. It comes out of nowhere. And then it's like, oh, would you rather be hit by a guy that you then have to shoot a bullet into your John's brain, like, in the pilot? Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) if that's the alternative to getting in a little snippy fit, I could see her having all of those same complaints, but not making them to Al. If she had had that conversation with Dan or with the doc or even with Alma, I would have totally believed that she was just letting off steam. But I don't think that that... Or Jewel. That would have been hilarious. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the way she would be presenting herself to Al in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. They failed to write from the female perspective here. They were writing from... Al's yep. personal arc yep. or whatever. I think uh, I do like her going back to the store and then um, sort of apologizing kind of to Seth and and Saul. But then I love her line of uh, tread lightly those in hopes of pussy. I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> and the expression on Seth's face when he overhears it was pretty amazing as well. Um, I was like, because he spent the whole day talking about pregnancy in like the most elliptical terms possible. Yeah. And she's just like... 
here's what it is. But yeah, I mean, in addition to Joni being miserable and Trixie being kind of d- dissatisfied, uh, Jane is a fucking mess. She, she looks awful. She woke up at, I don't know, dusk in uh, the dirt, beaten, and has no memory of who did it or why. <sighs> and she thinks it's like Monday when it's really Thursday. I mean, God knows how much time she's lost. I was worried that she was, like, physically, not just assaulted, but, like, sexually assaulted, and she had no memory. And I was glad that, like, they didn't make that point, um, because I was, like, sad enough already. Um, but, yeah, she's basically telling Charlie, like, alcoholism has me in its grip. Like, I have lost the plot. It's sad. It's sad. I'm sad for Jane. I want her to be happy again. Yeah, I want them to come up with something better for her to be um, relating to other than her relationship with alcohol can it at least come into a different context somehow? yeah i feel like they've kind of given her the same struggle the entire season at least last season she had the um the, the, the cam tent. the, the yeah. plague tent for her to like sort of show her colors as a person who can be productive and, and care for people and like feel useful in in her mm-hmm. part with doc cochran now that she doesn't really have doc cochran anymore she's just out drinking and they just haven't figured out how to move her along in the story i agree like i was trying to think how would i make her story more active instead of just like this repetitive drunkenness beat and charlie has hired her they make a point of being like she has missed her delivery because Mm -hmm. she was drunk somewhere else and i was thinking you know the the male leads of the series and jane no longer i kept thinking she was a lead she doesn't feel like a lead she's not in enough episodes she's not doing enough She's not on a journey that's big enough. Mm-hmm. But they let Seth leave town and and fight an Indian and have mm-hmm. a journey. And, like, why couldn't we follow Jane on her mail system, like, her, her mail route where she gets distracted by, like, women and drink and has, like, a dark night of the soul and fails Charlie, the only man who has ever mm-hmm. had faith in her since Bill died and... And I guess the answer is just that's not where the attention was. I think was. something like that could be useful from a storyline perspective as well because we are so isolated in Deadwood and we do get these moments of people coming through town like with the cavalry or whatever, letting you know what's going on with the government mm. encroachment outside. But it would be nice to actually be able to see some of that. Like maybe she goes to a town that just was annexed and learns what it really entails. I don't know. You could tie it in with other things that are going on. She also has skills. Like other, she was Wild Bill Hickok's like best friend, traveling companion for years and years. I'm assuming she's like probably a sharpshooter. Mm-hmm. She probably can hunt. She, you know, maybe yeah. she becomes like a protection person for somebody. I mean, just like there's just a lot of options or for her. Even working within like the things that they've already set up in the world. Remember season one, how uh, motherly she was towards Sophia, how protective she mm-hmm. was of Sophia when they discovered the caravan had been slaughtered. Let's put Jane on a mail route. Ma- mail route. Let's have her cross paths with incoming Chinese whores mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and have her have the moment where she's seeing the devastating effects of like the malnourishment and mistreatment of these women and have her come back into town and make a fuss of it or go off drinking because she feels helpless and she can't change. Like instead they give it to Doc. Yeah, because yeah. Doc gets pretty much all the positive human emotions. <laughs> he does. Yeah. Like, I feel like none of the other characters see the Asians as real people, like, except for Doc. Yeah. 
Well, before we wrap up, I mean, this episode is called EB Was Left Out, so I guess we better talk about EB for a moment, uh, who is torturing himself over not being invited to the smaller meeting of the patriarchy that happens in this episode. <laughs> and I do love the moment when he's like, why, Al? And Al's just like, because something's going down where you wouldn't be able to help yourself trying to blackmail a person, and it would get you killed. Yeah. And Evie's just like, well, thank you. <laughs> I thought that it was exactly the right amount of Evie to have in an episode. <laughs> he did get a new coat. Did you notice that? Oh, oh so God. ugly as well. They're all <laughs> so, so ugly. A parade of ugly coats. Yeah. One, and I, I don't care if they name the episodes after him, so long as he doesn't actually have, like, the pivotal story point, points. <laughs> yeah. It, it, he's, he is a repetitive character. He will never change. And then most feminist or least feminist moments, did anybody have nominations? I think the the ending image of Joni sitting alone sort of waiting for something to come to her mm-hmm. is not great for me. I mean, I think this character shows signs of what we would want, the agency we would want, and then it just gets, like, taken back from us. Yeah. And I know she was just gone through something really, really traumatic, but it doesn't necessarily feel like like a deep exploration of that so much as just like now she's waiting around for death to come again and i'm like okay why did she not get on that fucking wagon out of town why did she not yeah i mean that's all i can ask myself at this point uh i did want to say is charlie supplanting ellsworth as deadwood's most eligible (laughs) feminist uh hmm Interesting. He got the women out of town. Mm. He hugged Joni and comforted her mm-hmm. in her in her darkest hour. He is unapologetic about And he's very loyal to what she asked her. him. I mean, that's yeah. what happens when he finally goes to get the letter is he makes it very clear to Walcott he's not gonna tell anybody what happened and not because he gives a shit about him, but because mm-hmm. he, he told Joni he wouldn't. Yeah. Um so that's all Walcott needs to hear to leave Charlie alive, apparently. If it was season one Seth Seth would have murdered the man. Now <laughs> Seth is like, whatever, doggy doggy da. Um, and Charlie is like, I want to fucking murder you, but I will not do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ellsworth hasn't had a lot to do this episode. I'm waiting for a comeback for Ellsworth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't change the power rankings just yet. But but Charlie's right up there. I agree. <laughs> I think they're both kind of handsome. What has the show done to me? <laughs> I, I wouldn't go so far as to call Charlie Litter handsome. He needs but, a different haircut, 100%. But I did defend his frock coat, so I understand <laughs> where you're coming from. That's all for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at LadyWoodCast, if you want to continue the conversation. Until then, I'm at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at Lee Brandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. I'm at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. Thank you for listening.